Thanks for tuning in to the Medevac Podcast, powered by the Robert Irvine Foundation, whose mission is to support and strengthen the physical and mental well-being of our nation's heroes and their families. They provide them with life-changing opportunities, resources, and support through food, wellness, community, and financial programs. I'm one of your hosts, David Reed. And I'm your other host, Christian Myers. Thank you for joining us today. If you're new to the Medevac Podcast, please keep in mind, there's a price for the show. You have to share it with a friend or family member if you get something out of today's episode. So... I know you're going to get something out of today's episode because our guest is pretty fantastic. He's got a, an amazing story. Please welcome Caden Gill, who also goes by Smurf. AKA Smurf. Smurf. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, good to be here. I'm glad we finally connected. I know this has kind of been yeah. unfolding over the past nearly a year to try to get down here and see you. So, yeah, so yeah it's been great. Be so, as a quick recap nine years in the Navy. Yes, sir. And you medically retired out in 2018 after some crazy experiences happens, which yeah. we'll dive yeah. into deeply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some crazy experiences leading to that and then some even more crazy experiences after. So <laughs> I guess have lots of exciting <laughs> things to look forward to today. The story goes on. <laughs> the story continues. That's for great. Sure. Well, let's let's rewind all the way back to the beginning uh, when you joined the military um, to attend OCS. Yeah. Yes. And, and you joined because like, was it family or what kind of got you interested in the military? So, you know, growing up, uh, I was largely raised by sort of, uh, unconventional hippie type folks. Um, uh, <laughs> my, my mom was, uh, a, a, an obstetrician gynecologist or a vagina whisperer, as I like to call her. Uh, <laughs> my dad, uh, He's like just sort of, uh, you know, this kind of dude that always, he would never buy any clothes. So he was always like patching together his old stuff, like living off the grid. He carves his own bows. He goes out into the woods, makes a freaking snow cave and sleeps in it and wakes up and hunts deer. Uh, He's just like a a wild man. Sounds like a real man. Doesn't really fit into modern society. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But they were, they were never, um, you know, really into supporting the military when I was growing up that they were against it, but my dad hadn't been drafted in the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an uncle who was a Marine, but, uh, most of my family was not, you know, had much affiliation with the military at that point. And, you know, I wasn't even allowed to play violent video games. <laughs> I couldn't have GI Joe's. Yeah. So it all kind of backfired on my folks, but uh, <laughs> I ended up going uh, to college. Uh, there's a little aviation school at the community college where I grew up. Mm-hmm. As I came out of high school, uh, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I had always had an interest in aviation. I got to go up in a little Cessna when I was a kid, and I loved it. Yeah. And so when I came out of high school, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll try that. And uh, ended up enrolling there. Did pretty well. Ended up becoming a flight instructor by the time I was a junior in college. Okay. While I finished up uh, my four-year degree through a satellite program, uh, I was flight instructing. And by the time I was graduated, uh, I had a student, actually, uh, an older gentleman, just super brilliant dude, that ran his own privacy research and consulting firm and think tank. Uh, and he ended up inviting me and said, hey, would would you like to work for my company I need somebody to fly me around. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> Hell yeah. So we basically were looking around. He I helped him like pick out an aircraft. We went down to the the Mooney factory here in Texas. I actually picked mm. up a brand new Mooney Acclaim, like fully decked out. And then I spent a year flying around the country, a lot of single pilot time as well as instructing with him. Okay. Got a pretty good glimpse into the world of corporate America. He worked a lot with a lot of tech companies. Mm. And so it was a good gig. It paid well, especially at the time. It was right when the stock market crashed. Mm. A lot of the guys that I was flight instructors with were all scrambling to make, you know, 17 grand a year trying to get into the regional airlines, all shacking up together in some crappy apartment. Like it was a rough time to come out of college and try to be getting into that industry. So I was very fortunate to have that position. But after a year of it, I still kind of wanted more in my life um, while it was very cushy and I learned a lot and I got to be a fly on the wall in some very interesting meetings in the tech world. Mm. Um, it just kind of wasn't, I, I wasn't feeling terribly passionate about it. Yeah. And I had a friend, Mark, who was applying to the Navy to be a pilot. 
And at the time I was like, you know, don't you have to go to the Naval Academy? Doesn't your dad have to be an admiral? And so I started <laughs> yeah. researching and I found this website called Air Warriors. It's still out there and it's a great resource for anybody who's potentially looking at a career in military aviation. Hmm. Um, and I dug around on there for a while. And at first I actually wanted to go to the Coast Guard. Uh, I had read a book called The Last Run, which mm-hmm. is all about uh, these wild Coast Guard rescues up in Alaska, which... <laughs> yeah. I know you've got a little experience with yeah, or a lot of experience with that. Yeah, done a couple of times. Um, but anyways, that kind of was drawn to that sort of rescue community at first, but it was going to be like a six month wait for the board. Mm. And so I was like, well, I'll apply Navy and see what happens. So, you know, went through all the testing, uh, did well with all my aviation flight experience at that point. It made for a pretty good package. Yeah. And I, I don't remember imagine. how long it took, but a couple months later, I heard back and got picked up for a pilot slot. Oh, man. And uh, so feeling. I was exciting. Do you think <clears throat> large in part that had to do with you already having your prop license? Um, you absolutely do not need it. You don't need it. But uh, do you think that that... I, I think it was helpful. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, the needs of the military fluctuate pretty drastically mm-hmm. uh, over time. And so at the time, I think it was, you know, middle of the road. They were taking a fair amount of people. It wasn't super exclusive. I yeah. think that kind of helped accelerate me into that position. Mm-hmm. But you can go in, you can be a freaking basket weaving major. Yeah. <laughs> and if you score decent on the test, uh, that you have to take this aptitude test ahead of time. Yeah. And that's really what they look at. Mm-hmm. They look at your, you know, your college history. You make sure you didn't, you know, Flunk just out of goof around or, the whole time you're in yeah, college or yeah. whatever. Um, but if you have decent grades and you do okay on that test and you have a four year degree, that's really all you need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. I think it helps set you up for success going through training as well, right? If you have a basic understanding of flight rules and, and characteristics. There were, yeah, there were certainly some advantages, yeah. but there are also the disadvantages mm-hmm. of already being set in my own ways exactly. that became yeah. actually a struggle for me during parts imagine. of training. Breaking is, bad is, habits. You, you have to break those habits to reform the habits that they want you to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wouldn't even call them bad habits. Like I just knew how to do certain things already, but they yeah. want to reteach you and relearning how to do things somebody else's way at times is very absolutely challenging. What's, what's an example of that? So uh, once I got in, got into flight school, uh, you know, I already had like the very basic like stick and rudder skills. I could, I was already an instrument pilot, so I was comfortable with a lot of that. But as I got into, um, a lot of the procedural stuff, it was like, they really want you to do things a certain way. And there's also mm-hmm. I, one of the biggest challenges was you would sometimes get these instructors that sort of had like an inferiority complex with you. Like, Oh yeah, here's this brand new ensign and, and he knows he's a better pilot than I am. He's a better <laughs> stick. Like I remember flying with several guys and they'd be flying, you know, in the instrument in the clouds and they'd be going all over and altitudes kind of shifting in the aircraft while and they would hand me the controls and it would just be like <laughs> stable. <laughs> so there was a little bit of like a little bit of anger towards me yeah. because I was a good pilot, like a good stick and rudder pilot. Not saying I, you know, knew anything about the world of tactical aviation at that point, but, mm-hmm. but so there's a little aviation. bit of that, that yeah. uh, created an abrasive attitude towards some of the instructor staff. Sure. Yeah. A little resentment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. So how long does that training look like while, while you're going through that? And, so, and what's the steps, uh-uh. right? Because you, yeah. usually you do single prop and then you move on. You've already done that. So like, what did, what did that kind of flow look like for you? So I went to OCS, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island for mm-hmm. about three months. Uh, graduated there after, you know, standard, boot camp kind of stuff running around getting yelled at by marine drill instructors um, <laughs> i really kind of enjoyed it because you see you know i don't know if you guys are the same in in this it sounds kind of common with military guys but you see other people kind of like freaking out and struggling with things that are really not that bad and it kind of like lifts your spirit a little yeah. bit <laughs> yeah. i i think that that's the best medicine is yeah. when People suck harder than you do. Yeah. yeah. And not that I want to yeah. see them struggle, but at the same time, you're kind of like, we talk right, about that all the that time, bad. you know, on the runs, the ruck <laughs> runs and everything where you're just like, I am dying right now. And then you look to your left or right and the, they're just on the side thrown up and you're like, okay, I could do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least I'm not that guy. It gives you a little spark. <laughs> yeah. like a little, uh, 
But anyways, got through that fairly unscathed, uh, ended up going to Pensacola, Florida to do a- aviation pre-flight indoctrination or API, mm. which is uh, basically a month of ground school. Uh, you learn a lot of aviation basics, weather, navigation. Uh, you do a little bit of survival training. Uh, you get to swim a mile in your flight suit, which was another one of those things you see people like really struggling with. And you oh, yeah. like, right, this How'd you do that bad? I was very comfortable in the water. Mm-hmm. I grew up uh, largely up in northern Michigan where I was okay. in the lakes a lot. Uh, I did a lot of like kiteboarding. Mm-hmm. I'd been drug around by these old school original kites that didn't have any safety features back then. And <laughs> so I was very comfortable, like nearly drowning, uh, which actually became a very useful skill. Uh, and I'll get into in the story a little later. Yeah. Um, but I, I really enjoyed all that kind of training. I like the harder stuff. I like the hands-on training, you know, the practical experience training. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did the helo dunker, you know, dump you upside down. I'm sure you guys probably had to do that. Thing. Oh yeah. Uh, blindfold you, got to get out and you're in a you know a lit pool so it's it's not terrible but you can imagine what it might how awful it would be to be in the dark yeah. in the real chaos of something like that happening oh yeah uh, and how Ugh. awful that would be but uh, made it through that stuff no problem uh and then ended up going to vt28 which is in corpus christi texas with the the rangers mm. uh so not far from here actually we'd come up to san antonio to escape in austin to mm-hmm. get out of get out of corpus at times um but i flew the t34 charlie turbo mentor which is uh actually a pretty high performance it's a single engine turbine prop aircraft Mm -hmm. uh, fully aerobatic complex aircraft with retractable gear and flaps so as far as a baseline aircraft to be jumping into for your first aircraft really it's like that's on the upper side of general yeah, aviation training. That's Porsche so, level. Yeah. So it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, a lot of, of academic hazing and, and, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you get to start to learn the dynamics with these different instructors and, and they try to be as objective as possible with the grading. But a lot of the times it becomes more of who your instructor is can yeah. make just as big a difference. So you can have, you can have the best flight of your life, the best event of your life that you've prepared the most for, and you can get a poopy pants instructor that you don't vibe with, mm-hmm. and you oh, can have a bad day. You know, yeah. that just reminds me of ranger school. You know, I I, I was a, a squad leader at the time, weapons squad leader, and this captain was grading an E6 position. And I was like making the weapon systems talk, and I was like, this felt good to me. This is a win. And he came up and it was like, that was shit. Just, he had like a stigma against bat boys, you know, yeah. going through the program. Uh, so, yeah, there was definitely that, that aspect to the training. And you could also have kind of a rough day and not do your best, but you got a Santa Claus instructor who just gives you great grades. So yeah. you win some, you lose some. But uh, my previous flight instruction or experience really helped with that phase with the stick and rudder portion. There's still a massive amount of rote memorization and procedural mm-hmm. knowledge that I just had to digest and regurgitate. Um, I basically had like two weeks off before starting, uh, before I, I was going to actually have my first flight. And in that time, a lot of other guys were just like going out, having a good time. And I did <laughs> some of that. Don't get me wrong. But I also took that two weeks that we had this little break uh, in training, and I just freaking crammed everything. Mm-hmm. I memorized all the emergency procedures, all the SOP. I knew everything that I possibly could fit in every day. I spent the majority of my time doing that in mm-hmm. training. And when I showed up for my first flight, I ended up with like the grumpiest instructor. There. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, that guy. Good luck. Oh, no. And you know, I just went in and he already had a rough attitude, but as we got into the brief, I like, I started regurgitating all this stuff that you mm. normally don't have to know until a couple months in. And he's like, okay. Yeah. Did your preparation. You passed. Yeah. And there was a little bit of respect. He still had like this intense attitude, but yeah, that definitely helped my over-preparedness. Mm. You know, I've always kind of been the opposite of a procrastinator for better or worse at times. Uh, but, uh, it seemed to help in naval training for sure. Mm. Um, anyways, I did about six months there, a little over six months, uh, got to do, you know, everything from basic flight procedures, emergency procedures, systems, knowledge, instrument flying. Um, and then you get into aerobatics, mm. uh, and some more fun stuff along the way. 
and uh, ended up graduating out of there towards the top of my class. I think I was second in my class. There's another dude who was just like a super nerd genius, even <laughs> more prepared than I was. But uh, I still, I got to put down my choice of tail hook. Uh, out of there, you can choose uh, the tail hook pipeline. You can choose helicopters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's even a few people that go to the E9, which is like the doomsday communication aircraft. Yeah. Um, a few guys picked that and then the P3 at that mm-hmm. time, which is now the P8, like a patrol plane. Yeah. Um, but I did well enough uh, that I was able to put down uh, tail hook as long as you're in the top 50% of your class. Uh, or I can't remember if it's the top 50% of your class or like a certain score that you have to have. Sure. Um, but uh, ended up putting down tail hook. And again, you can put down tail hook and needs of the Navy, they can be like, sorry, everybody's P3s this week or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately that week, uh, got a tail hook slot. And so I headed to Kingsville, Texas again, not mm-hmm. too far from here. And I joined VT 22, uh, and I started flying the T 45 Charlie Goshawk, which mm-hmm. is, uh, affectionately known as the clown jet. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty high performance little single engine jet Okay, and they paint it orange and white. So it looks like a clown oh. and, uh, you know, having a bunch of guys that are new to jets flying around in these things, it can be a clown show. For oh, sure. sure. Yeah. Um, which is probably why they put us out in Kingsville, Texas. And, and what's the purpose of flying this? Uh, so, you know, it, it's to continually, uh, you know, learn the basics in the T-34. Now the T-6 Texan is what they use. So it's but, still uh, training. It's still this point. training. Uh, and it's just gradually getting you acclimated to operating at a faster pace Mm -hmm. and operating a more complex more capable aircraft yeah and just sort of slowly building that so and how did that feel getting behind um i was i was very comfortable in the t-45 um again my previous aviation experience i i had gotten to do a little bit of flying in jets already Mm -hmm. in the civilian world um so it was very comfortable for me and Mm -hmm. and again that first part of intermediate training in the goshawk I still felt I had a pretty good advantage with my previous flight experience. Sure. Um, uh, so I, I really felt very comfortable mm-hmm. and my performance really helped me uh, mm-hmm. in my ability to fly that aircraft and be comfortable and stay ahead of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of guys get into the Goshawk and it's a real challenge because oh, yeah. things happen much quicker um, and it's a much easier to screw up and get way behind the jet and get confused. And, you know, I hear people go up on their first flight or whatever, and they end up like departing the aircraft or just all this clown show kind of stuff happens. But at that point, my previous experience and my preparation uh, had me feeling very comfortable. Mm. Uh, And as I went through intermediate training over the course of that six months or so, I ended up having really good grades. um, And I got to uh, selection there. And that's where you choose. Are you going to go fly? The E2C2, which is the the surveillance aircraft that operates off of the aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. or the C2, which is the the onboard carrier demand uh, delivery. So they fly, you know, mail and people to and from the shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could also, at that time, I think you could still select prowlers, which are like these big electronic attack aircraft. Uh, and now they've transitioned over to the Growler, which is basically a Super Hornet, uh, but with electronic attack equipment on it. Mm-hmm. Vice. Uh, bombs and missiles okay um but i wanted to fly the fighters um so that that's what i i said at selection and you go into this whole interview you know one it's based off your grades but probably an even bigger component is how that interview and your personality um Mm. they really want somebody who understands that you are really dedicating yourself to this fully because i mean you have to basically committing your life to this and that's all you do Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a job. Like, you, a- you get to put away all your hobbies. Mm-hmm. You got to put your family second if you have a family. So they really want to make sure that you're in that mindset before and you're you go into constantly it. learning. It's, oh, it's it, it's just 100 percent pure training environment. Yeah, and it's just the whole way through. Even even as you get more advanced in your career in that in that strike fighter community, you're just constantly getting more and more qualifications. Mm-hmm. You're constantly there's all the tactics are constantly changing. Yeah. It's just a constant barrage of information that you have to be able to deal with. And in the super Hornet and uh, Hornet communities, it's, it's sort of this Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, communities, uh, 
Like for example, in the air force, if you're a fighter pilot, you typically have sort of an area of expertise Mm -hmm. where you, you really focus on electronic attack or you really focus on strike or you really focus on just the fighter side of it. But in the super Hornet, you got to kind of know a little bit about everything. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you describe the F-18? So the F-18, um, the Super Hornet, uh, the Hornets have kind of been phased out as the legacy Hornets. Uh, we're now just flying the E's and F's, the Super Hornets. Uh, it's a single or two-place cockpit aircraft, uh, two-engine, uh, you know, gray pointy wings. It's got a uh, very cool look to it. It's a Generation 4 fighter, um, so designed back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a radar, it's got a gun, and it's capable of putting all sorts of air-to-air and air-to-ground weapons on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also carrier-borne, so it's yeah. got robust landing gear system, a tail hook for landing on the cable, uh, catching a cable, mm-hmm. and a, a nose uh, launch bar system, so it can be launched off the carrier. So kind of you're all around. Uh, in, the, in the world of fighter aviation, we kind of jokingly call it the fat kid because <laughs> compared to some fighters out there, it's not the most speedy and agile, but it's, it's still a fighter jet. And Quite it's capable. Pretty damn capable. Yeah. Um, it's got 44,000 pounds in afterburner with both those engines ripping. So it can get around. You yeah. Know? It's maybe not uh, the most elite of the fighters or, or the best of the bombers, but it's kind of a little bit of everything, yeah, mm-hmm. which keeps it real interesting for you as a pilot. Yeah, and it's held up to date. I mean, even yeah. our, our new gen aircraft aren't. <laughs> they're like they're the posing thirty five. They're posing a lot of issues, right? I mean, the twenty. Yeah, I mean, um, they've got their own respective issues that are. Yeah, I mean, they, these Gen five aircraft now yeah. that we're on to, they're just so complex. Yeah, and, and with that complexity comes great capability, but there also comes you know the growing pains, yeah, nuanced error with um, it. <laughs> and you know, right before I joined the Navy, I had this brilliant uh, professor in college. He was actually a former career Navy test pilot. He'd flown Mm. back in the Vietnam era. Uh, He was a Huey gunship pilot. Just, uh, he was with the sea wolves, which were like the first special operations helicopter unit flying day or night into anything to, you know, we drop you off, we pick you up. Mm -hmm. So he had seen just wild stuff. This guy's name's uh, Mike stock. He's still around. He's just a legend. He, he became a Bush pilot test pilot. Like this dude is done. But he he told me before I joined up, and he's like, you know, he gave me a few basic rules. And one of them was, whatever you do, try not to fly the first variant of any aircraft. <laughs> so um, Fair. guys that got into F-35, while it's, it's very cool and has some very cool capabilities, a lot of the guys that got into it early, mm-hmm. you know, they had to go through those growing pains. And had yeah, to, working so. out the kinks. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, the Super Hornet's been around now since the 90s. So a lot of those kinks, I mean, mm-hmm. there's constantly kinks to work out and procedural changes and yeah, tactical mm-hmm. changes. But um, it was pretty well established when I got into it. Mm. It's incredible. Incredible. So you're, uh, and sorry to jump ahead. I just, I just wanted to, oh, yeah. you know, talk about <clears throat> this aircraft. But um, now you're in this clown jet <laughs> and it's the clown show. Yeah. Um, and you're still kind of proving yourself in this world. Yeah. And, and at this point there's still pilots that are struggling. Oh yeah. I mean, at the time I joined when I got to aviation pre-flight indoctrination in Pensacola was right after the stock market crash basically. Mm. And the government, uh, made huge cuts. And so they realized like, oh, we've got way too many pilot candidates for the pilot slots we're going to have available. So mm-hmm. from basically day one in API, they were cutting hard, oh, which yeah. the pressure, I mean, API is normally like this laid back thing where you can just get 80% and pass the tests and be fine. So most people use it as a, a drinking evolution around Pensacola Beach. Sure. Um, <laughs> and it very quickly became not that while mm-hmm. I was there because- mm-hmm they raised up the standard score that you had to get to pass. And uh, a few classes after I had actually joined up and was going through this, you know, you basically had to score in the nineties or above on every test. And so you couldn't, you couldn't screw up. Um, But shortly after I had classed up, they got so desperate to cut people that they had this, uh, I guess you could call it like nightmare Oprah scenario. They had everybody, all the the students that are waiting in what's called a pool waiting to class up, uh, come in every morning to wear your khakis and go into muster in this auditorium. Everybody sits down and they're like, all right, look underneath your seat. And anybody with a pink envelope under their 
they're like, all right, go ahead and open it up. And it was like, sorry, goodbye. See you oh, today. Damn. What, a, uh, what a terrible way to present that. Too. Like, <laughs> so, just, yeah. So yeah. military. <laughs> and and I think I think there are a few people that are happy, like guys that went to the Naval Academy that had already done four years of that and kind of like, well, there were guys like that that were getting out with a free education basically. And like, all right, cool, I'm gonna go on with my life. But there were yeah. also a lot of dreams that were crushed. Oh, sure. Yeah. That. Um I bet. <laughs> Would you call it Doomsday Oprah? Yeah, like Nightmare Oprah, Nightmare Doomsday Oprah. Oprah. You get cut. You get cut. <laughs> yeah. You get cut. Like it, you think you're getting a prize. Like I can only imagine the first time of that. Just like, ooh, uh, pink envelope. Yeah. What is this? I heard Welcome to the military. <laughs> I heard the leadership that executed that plan actually uh got some flack for doing it. That I'm way, sure but, they uh, did. I mean they were desperate, so yeah. Um but yeah, even just in that first API phase, I mean OCS there were quite a few people cut and then you get to api and that was like people were dropping like flies from that and then especially on the navigation test because it was actually Mm. kind of difficult you're doing navigation old school navigation you're using these little whiz wheel e6b flight computer things you gotta (laughs) you know and and so people really struggled with that um but made it through all that um made it through primary uh and then now i made it to intermediate in the in the goss hawk and Mm. went to the selection board and I actually went to my board with my, my best friend that I'd gone to OCS with, uh, we were roommates and we mm. went to the same board together. And, uh, basically there was one jet slot and one E2 slot. And so we didn't really know what was going to happen. And, and it basically came down to that personality board and mm-hmm. who, who's going to be the personality fit for that community. And my roommate, he's awesome, dude. Uh, I think they perceived that he was maybe not quite as dedicated to that world and the studying that I was. And so they ended up picking me for the jet slot, which was Mm. great, but also kind of a crappy feeling. Like then I went back to my roommate who's, you know, his dreams were just burst. Uh, Yeah. He ended up going on to have just an amazing career and, and, and crushing it in that world flying E2s. But, uh, it was kind of a tough moment for him for sure. That's bittersweet for sure. Yeah. Uh, but ended up uh, selecting at that point, I was, I knew I was going to go fly some variant of the F 18. I didn't know if it was going to be the Charlie, the E, the F or potentially the growler. Um, and then as, as much as I kind of felt, I breezed through a lot of intermediate training. As soon as I got to advanced, it was like a whole different world. (laughs) I think, I think the instructor staff knew that I kind of, found that section fairly easy mm-hmm. and didn't really have any big struggles. And so they ended up making my on wing, this Marine uh, call sign fat, who was like the most brutal instructor there. He was just known for just failing everybody on everything mm-hmm. they did and just being extremely harsh. Uh, and while it was very miserable at the time, um, it also upped my game mm-hmm. that prepared me down the road. So in a way I was thankful that I had that sort of brutal, uh, advanced training for months of that sure. because I came out the other side and I went to the rag. Um, after I winged and graduated, I went, I was uh, selected for the super Hornet, mm-hmm. uh, and headed to VFA one Oh six gladiators in Virginia beach out of NAS Oceana. And when I showed up there, I think there were a lot of people who were not used to the standards of what fighter aviation is. And fat had just like beaten that into me. Like, mm-hmm. Everything from the presentation of your briefing room when you walk in, having the making sure you've emptied the garbage that's yeah. in the room, making sure the briefing board looks like a freaking robot read it up there. Yeah. And just, rulers and protractors everywhere. And right? like just even just my regurgitation of mm-hmm. knowledge, like knowing it verbatim and being able to just bam, 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 mm-hmm. instead of being the guy who kind of stumbles through it in his own words. And so I already had that baseline going in, which was hugely beneficial. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and, and when I got to the rag at one Oh six, there were guys that didn't have that, that really, you know, it was a kick in the nuts for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the briefs, especially. So uh, it's a good thing that you had, you know, yourself kicked in a little bit. Yeah. During training, right. Yeah. While, while that, you know, you know how it goes, like yeah. you get this brutal training and it's unpleasant, mm-hmm. but then you maybe later appreciate that yeah. for sure. On the back uh, end, you get a different perspective. That's an interesting one too, because a lot of the older school people or those who've been there longer always think they know best, but technically the newer school programs are the ones that are going to teach you how to hit the standard of today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, definitely some pros to that for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and it definitely helped me going into the rag because, uh, 
going into the strike fighter world, I mean, the standards are very high. Oh yeah. And, and at the time, uh, you know, the sort of leadership's guidance, uh, at the reg at that time, one, they're still like, they're trying to cut a lot of people mm. and we've already been through several filters to get to this point, but they're still like, you know, we don't need you. Mm. So, um, I think a lot of guys get their wings on their chest and get there and they're like, oh, I'm a winged aviator. And yep. now I got this. Good and, to go. Uh, yeah. Time to put my feet you up. show up and you realize you don't, you're just, you're just, you just got an entry pass. Yeah. That's all you got at this point. Yeah. You're barely, you're barely um, yeah. starting. Now, now the, <laughs> the true work begins. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you show up and you spend two weeks just doing all this computer training, like nonstop, just sitting at a computer for mm. eight to 12 hours a day, just getting a freaking fire hose of information blasted into your face. Um, and then you jump into simulators uh, and it's, you know, systems knowledge, procedural knowledge, emergencies, mm. uh, and got through that stuff through the transition phase where you're just kind of learning the basics of the jet navigation. You do some instrument flying, some low levels, uh, a lot of emergency procedure hazing where they just throw yeah. everything at you. Mm -hmm. uh, but you come out of that and your NATOPS qualified. So it means you're sort of a beginner in the jet. You're at least safe enough to go fly this thing. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, you do a solo. Uh, and the first time flying the super Hornet was, uh, one of the coolest experiences. Like oh, I can imagine, I mean, even just walking into the hangar the first day at one Oh six and seeing these things that I had like dreamed of as a kid and yeah. never thought like, my nerdy little ass was going to ever have a chance to do, but here I am. And here's these freaking magnificent oh, machines. Yeah. It was so surreal. And like putting on your G suit and your harness and your helmet and you're going out to this thing and the whole thing, like, well, you're super nervous. Cause like I you've bet. got very high standards <laughs> yeah. and grades and everything. You know, don't mess so. it up. Yeah. <laughs> Every day, you know, your career is hanging over your head, oh, which, yeah. which takes away a little of the fun. Yeah. Of course. That's what the yeah. military does, oh, though. Yeah. They suck the fun out of everything. <laughs> yeah. It should be the most fun job ever, but no, you're constantly just getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah, yeah. But you get those little glimpses and moments of how surreal it is. Um, That's but, what makes it more real, too, at the yeah. end of the day. When you're going back and reflecting on your life, that moment means so much to you. But all of that stress that was placed on you just locks it in so much more. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it makes it so much worth it. Like everybody else would do this, mm -hmm. but here I am, you know, getting behind this as a childhood dream, successfully accomplishing that. That's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah, man. Moment. It's uh, it's, it's tough and demanding, but so rewarding uh, yeah. for sure. So mm -hmm. you're looking at this beast, which are way bigger in person than they look like on everything <laughs> oh, yeah. else. So big. <laughs> oh yeah. You're like, Oh, that's just a little fighter jet. You see nope. like the blue angels fly yeah, over. It's the size of a human, except a little bigger. Right. <laughs> and then you walk up and you're like, Whoa, yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, 30 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, like 50 feet long. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, climbing up into the cockpit and getting out on my first flight, you take the runway and you put that thing in the full afterburner oh, on takeoff yeah. and you can feel that 44,000 pounds of thrust just shoot off mm. behind you and pushes you back in your seat. And before you know it, you're up in the air and the gear up and the flaps are up and you're like 10 miles behind the jet. Just yeah. like, Whoa, like, Oh shit. Um, but yeah, uh, pushed through, through that transition training, uh, ended up going to the strike training you do first, uh, which is learning all the, you know, air to ground bombing procedures, mm. close air support, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of, ends with a detachment out to El Centro, California, where you do a couple weeks out in the desert at the mm -hmm. bombing ranges there doing some very cool training. Yeah. A lot of close air support. You get to do some like high threat cast scenarios. Um, very cool. Uh, and at this point, you know, any advantage I had from my previous flight experience was gone, which, uh, you know, made this sort of part of the training kind of a kick in the nuts because through a lot of the earlier training, I was able to kind of rely on my previous experience. Mm -hmm. yeah. But as I got into advance in the T 45 and then now at the rag and in the, the super Hornet, like whatever advantage I had initially, we were, it was a level playing field yeah. at this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, so I was just holding on for dear life, just trying to make it through. Yeah. Um, but just kept grinding. Uh, I had my fair share of struggles going through, you know, I had, Occasionally I'd get a, it's called a signal of difficulty. They give you a pink slip, which is like, Hey, you kind of sucked on this flight. Mm. We'll give you another chance. Rang back you some don't, doomsday Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't get too many of those, uh, before it's sure. like, see you later, you know, but, what, what uh, are some of like the tangible struggles that you were facing? 
Um, you know, for me, I, I was strong on the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could prepare, I could, you know, learn a lot of information and regurgitate that in a brief, but then to take these very advanced tactics that you're reading, well, you're basically going out of several different publications mm-hmm. and you're trying to take bits and pieces of all this different information and put it all together in yeah. something you've never done. So it would be like trying to learn how to play rugby, for example, and you've never played rugby before, you've got like 10 different publications that explain the rules of rugby and the athleticism of rugby mm-hmm. and, and how many shoelaces and how to tie your shoe and what the shoes are made of and all the gear. And you put all that together and you go out on the field, but you don't know how to freaking play rugby yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the biggest struggle was taking all this information and then executing it. It's practical application of written knowledge. Yeah. That's a that's a big one. And I think that for our audience, we could say any board game that you've ever learned yeah. and you read the manual and then you go to play it. Right. And you're like, I have no idea what to do. Right. <laughs> but it's also real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, yeah. <laughs> you're, you are going to jail. No $200 for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, hold on, hold on. There's, there's consequences here. And, and, and uh, what is the worth of uh, a super hornet? Um, so in 2014, the value of a lot 27 F-18 Echo Super Hornet was $89 million. Oh, so that's a big responsibility. Adjusted Man. for inflation today, that's like 106-ish million dollars. Manageable. And at the <laughs> current rate of inflation, that'll be like $400 million in yeah. a few weeks. In a couple of weeks. Yeah, <laughs> next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's a big responsibility. Sure uh, and, but that, that for me, that was the, and I think that's where most guys that's the biggest hurdle is taking all this information mm. and getting into something new. And every day, basically you're doing something you've never done Yeah, uh, and having such high standards. And then again, the, the instructor piece plays in, you have some instructors that are, are very good at like getting the best out of you so that mm. you learn, but you also have a lot of instructors, especially at this time, there was uh, one of the training officers at the squadron had put together this white paper and, you know, it wasn't exactly saying this, but in short, it was saying millennials are sort of a bunch of spoiled brats that are coming into this training and, and they're, you know, sort of entitled. So we need to deal with them differently. Yeah. And so there was a sort of like heavy handed. And it was really funny because you'd see these instructors walking around being like fucking man- fucking millennials. And I was older than a lot of the instructors <laughs> and they were millennials too. Uh, so there was kind of a you know, the, those moments of silent comedy I enjoyed to myself, but oh, I'm sure yeah. <laughs> uh, there was this mentality towards the instructor or there was at least a cadre of the instructors that sort of had this attitude towards the students at that time that, you know, you're just a bunch of freaking entitled millennials, yeah. which we've say, we say nobody about. in my class was like that. Like yeah. we were all there to earn our, our point, our spot. And to be fair, we say that about every generation yeah, that's right? younger than us. Right. Yeah. Because you know, I, and God help us for Generation Z, who's going to become yeah. pilots now, right? We <laughs> can mean, say the same thing. You were in the last hard ranger school, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. back yeah, when it was hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, were in the la- assessment you were in the last hard one, yeah. right? That's what everyone yeah. says. I was in the last hard, I was in the last hard buds class. <laughs> I was in the last <laughs> hard selection. Days, they they, don't get it. You don't know how it was. <laughs> yeah, and, and my thing is like, you know, technology changes so drastically. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at history... You remember how they cleared, uh, you know, CQB in Vietnam? These guys are like hip firing their weapons, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like back when it's hard. Waltzing in, yeah. Low carrying gear on, it's no vest or anything. You yeah. need to have that structure in place. So, like, the generations, uh, you know, bring value to that as well. Sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and, in, in the world of strike fighter aviation, you know, you look back and see like what the World War II pilots were doing in the Vietnam <laughs> yeah. era. Like, it was the wild freaking West. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you finished basically the equivalent of what was our advanced training in the T 45. You put on wings. Uh, they were flying different aircraft back then, like a fours, but you went from that and you jumped right into a squadron and you were deployed in Vietnam, like in Vietnam, getting shot <laughs> yeah. from the air and the ground right in away. chaos. Yeah. And I mean, guys died way more frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there was certainly like, you know, there were things in that era that were, you know, just wild west and more difficult, but there's also, we've evolved the tactics so much that I think a lot of the tactics have become more complex and mm-hmm. the technology is more complex. So, you know, both, both have their challenges for sure. And I think when I was going through the challenges, they're just, the super Hornet had become so capable of so many mission sets and each one of those was evolving so quickly mm-hmm. 
that it was just information overload. Yeah. And so working your way and, and dealing with the closest alligator to the canoe essentially became like an art form that you had to get very good at very quickly. Mm-hmm. Adaptability and, and just reaction time for sure had to be um, intense just, as well. And just, you know, the learning curve was steep and you had to be a quick learner. Mm-hmm. And, and you also had to be able to, if you did screw up, you had to be able to brush it off and get back at it. Yeah. And may, you were lucky if you were to get a couple second chances, but no one was going to wait out for you for very long. So sure. if um, you find yourself being more proficient or less proficient at certain um, activities, I guess, within the scope of your mission <laughs> parameters, do they like buckle you in like somewhere like where you're good at? If you're more proficient at like communications or CAS, right? If you're doing close air support, but you're shit at electronic warfare or bombing, are they going to shuttle you more towards like a CAS centric or do you have to maintain standards across the board? No, you really have to, you have to maintain a standard and mm-hmm. you're continuously going through different levels of the strike fighter weapon training syllabus. So you come out of the initial F-18 training, like where I was at 106 and you're a level one Swifty qual, Mm -hmm. which means you're basically safe enough not to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. But then you, you got to do your combat, your level two, your combat wingman. Then you're doing combat section lead. Then you're doing combat division lead. And then as you work your way through, you know, you've got to become, all these different levels all the way up to you can be a commanding officer of a fighter squadron and you're still doing these swifty events. Okay. So you always are learning and you have to know this wide range of mission sets and be capable. Mm. Uh, if you excel at one thing, like say uh, you're really good at the boat, potentially you might end up with a spe- specific qual to be like a landing signal officer LSO okay. where you help other guys land on the boat. And you'll get specialties throughout, and you mm-hmm. might have to be a subject matter expert in certain things, the sure. SME for your squadron on a certain thing. But everybody still has to know the same massive amount of information. Yeah. You don't really get to specialize. Sure. That mm-hmm. makes sense. So what was what was the next next portion? So we got into your first solo flight. Mm-hmm. And you're going through all this other training too. So what is is are you in the momentum of your training now? I mean, how is this, is this ever changing? What is, what is it looking like next for you? Or is it just constant training and briefing? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's constant studying, constant training, constant briefing, uh, constant regurgitation and new information, constantly struggling to learn something very quickly. And as soon as you get to where you're like, okay, I'm kind of getting the hang of that enough not to suck, then it's all right, time for the next training. event. So you go through all these different, versions of air to ground employment from smart weapons to conventional weapons to cast high threat cast low level flying and then as soon as you're decent at that all right guess what now it's the fighter phase now Mm -hmm. you got to learn how to fight the jet uh you get into air combat maneuvering or bfm basic fighter maneuvering so employing against other aircraft within visual range Mm -hmm. which is freaking very high pace very cool probably the epitome of what people think of when they think of fighter pilot is you know You're, you and this other dude tangling it up, the you know knife fight in a phone, yeah, dog yeah, fighting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. My my question is that I'm sure everybody is going to be thinking too. Is in the movies we see these guys in aerial combat, uh, you know, with your your weapon system, just tracing these guys down. It, it's got to be so hard to hit something. Oh yeah, <laughs> at those speeds while you're moving and they're moving. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just being good at hitting stationary thing on the ground and air to ground employment, which is probably why you do the strike phase first. Is yeah. like, all right, first learn how to hit something that's not moving. Yeah. All right, and now people guess miss what? all the time. I'm sure. Oh yeah, and now you're going to be in the air, and it's going to be moving, and it's going to be trying to kill you, yeah. and they're probably better than you. So good luck. Yeah, um, it's moving three dimensionally while you are too. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's part art form you know, part science. Mm. Uh, and, and I love that phase, you know, uh, the dynamic nature of it, the high intensity, the G force, um, being a shorter guy was beneficial for me. Uh, I was doing a lot of weight training back then. So I, I was good at pulling G's and, Mm. and, and the easier you can deal with the physical stress of that environment, you know, the more brain cells you have to utilize for what you're doing with the stick and rudder, operating your defensive systems and your weapon systems and, and, uh, you have that much more bit of your brain to think with vice, just hold on for dear life. So let's, let's dive into that mm-hmm. a little bit is these physical stresses that are being put on your body. What are some of the things that are going on as far as your reaction time, as far as your response time, 
you know, as you increase in G's, like you're saying, like that brain is being pushed against the skull. You have less oxygen. So like, did you drastically notice that difference? Um, yeah, again, for, for me, I was very comfortable, Mm -hmm. um, you know, doing a lot of CrossFit and weight training, you're, mm. you kind of get used to operating where you're, you're breathing heavily. You're maybe a little hypoxic. Yeah. You're feeling these stresses through your body. So, you know, for anybody interested in that world, I can't recommend CrossFit enough <laughs> as, or, or Olympic lifting and things like that to train you for that. Yeah. Um, the guys that, you know, were struggling more, especially when we went to the centrifuge in El Centro, they put you in the thing and spin you around like an astronaut, you yeah. know, and you get mushed. Uh, the guys that struggled were typically, uh, the taller or leaner guys that didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of leg and core strength. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also just being taller, it makes it more difficult because you have a longer distance between your heart and your brain and that much more distance for your heart to force the blood up, yeah. um, which just naturally makes it more difficult for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt I had a, you know, a smidge of an advantage there, but still, you know, being comfortable with that and then being able to think and, you know, it's like being in a wrestling match, trying to play the jazz piano, driving in traffic, texting on your phone with screaming kids in the back. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on, um, in that environment, but I, I absolutely loved it. And, and because of, I had such a passion for that phase, I really like dove into it. Uh, and in that phase, actually it was in a way it was, some of it was easier to learn because they actually had, uh, this video series that they had put together. Top Gun. Uh, it was done by <laughs> a Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. You, so you sit in a, a you Cruise, sit in yeah. a skiff and you put on the original Top Gun and you just listen to Danger Zone <laughs> for like twelve hours a day, and then you get in the jet and it's like. Yeah. magic and is you that serious school for you guys it's just, <laughs> it's just top gun on repeat oh, 24 yeah. hours a day for a week uh, yeah <laughs> i i love serious school yeah. there are people again maybe because i love seeing other people having a rough day yeah serious school is great it was it was some of the coolest training i thought <laughs> and i feel uh at least the version that we got there uh was maybe a little bit easier than what they might give the sf guys i think we get like the pg-13 version yeah yeah uh, which i was a little disappointed about uh, anyway, uh, no broken fingers. No, no broken fingers. <laughs> they'll break a single bone. I think we had a, I think we had a, a few concussions, uh, yeah. but that that was the the worst that happened. That was, I think. That was always the rumor. Ankles. They, yeah. they can break up to one bone. Like they're not going to break <laughs> any bone. They would tell that to all the students. Slaps. Yeah, they would tell yeah, that to they, all the students. Yeah, they they could break up to one bone. Like no, they're not going to destroy right. your body. They they're got a lot of money in you at that yeah. point in time. You're a million dollar asset. They're well, not going to break you. Swear by it. I'm like, yeah, they broke my finger. Yeah, I did a pinky finger. You have to spread that knowledge. You know, you spread that. Yeah, gotta instill the fear. Keep them wide eyed. It was way harder in my day though i don't yeah. know if they do it anymore i was in the last hard serious school <laughs> uh, <laughs> broke my little finger <laughs> yeah i mean uh, i won't get i guess we can't really get in all that stuff but i yeah. wish we could because it's mean, funny <laughs> it is they, funny i, mean, I think we're all out of our nda I, phase now yeah, huh? yeah. Uh, you know camping with activities you see a lot of people who have never been camping that yeah. are just like oh it's cold it's and so wet hard. Yeah. and we're camping out five days yeah i don't I have mean, a microwave it, in a- it's something we talk to our team about all the time <laughs> It's just some like, you know, guys, no one's shooting at you. Yeah, like, just yeah. solve the problem. Yeah. You know, you got plenty of time in your cozy little house yeah, to come right. up with a solution. And I mean, I enjoyed a lot of the captivity phases, too. It yeah. was kind of fun. Resistance uh, phase, yeah. yeah. I wish that they kind of took the gloves off a little more and like, well, again, I guess... I got. I got talk about Fight Club, but I got smacked pretty hard. <laughs> he smacked me over the ear by accident. He was trying to slap me in the face. He slapped me in the ear, so my equilibrium just like went out the door, and I like dropped to the ground. <laughs> he broke character right away. He's like, "Oh sure, you okay? I didn't mean to hit you in the ear." <laughs> T for timeout. Yeah, he like T for stood time. me up and shook me off. He's like, "You all right?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm fine." I'm like, all right, back to scenario. <laughs> back to scenario. <laughs> yes, that Action. again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, during this time and all this training, what was it looking like for you with Afghanistan, with Iraq, all the happenings overseas? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a very exciting time to be getting through all that training because I mean, a lot of guys that were coming back as instructors were coming back from active combat. Yeah. And, uh, while there wasn't a whole lot of air to air kind of combat going on, there was a ton of casts. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys with, multiple employments in close air support scenarios, working with, uh, SF types, you know, 
doing real work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was an exciting time. Mm-hmm. And so we all kind of knew that going through, like, we're actually going to do our real mission when we get through this. Um, and uh, ended up making it through there. Uh, ended up doing uh, fighter phase. So the BFM and dog fighting. And then you get into uh, air-to-air tactics, which are, you know, four-dimensional chess, you know, at high speed. Yeah. So that stuff, uh, at least for like the knowledge intake, was the extreme limits of my personal capabilities of what I can understand. And, and, and that part is extremely difficult, uh, with the tactics that you have to know and, oh, yeah. and, and, and the speed that it happens and you're flying in formation and you're operating all these weapons. It's like the first time doing some of that. And I can't talk about in detail, like what we do, but the first time doing some of that stuff's like, I can't believe we are doing this right now. Yeah. And it's only going to get more crazy. Oh yeah. Um, Helmet fire. Like to oh, say the yeah. least, uh, but, uh, and then at the end, the last phase you go through is CQ carrier qualifications, which, uh, being able to land a jet aircraft on a moving aircraft in bad weather in the dark is the ultimate test of yeah. uh, aviation skill for sure. And while there's, you know, all the fighter and cast and all of that, there's definitely challenges with that, but, uh, the actual ability, you know, to, to land on this moving thing in the dark with the weather throwing everything at you is like stupid and that's probably i think to this day the, to the best of my knowledge we're still the only country that does night carrier ops mm, um, yeah. and and going to that training i mean i saw guys that were we had a lot of exchange pilots that came and they were the best pilots from their country and we had experienced guys from the air force that came and they got some of them a few of them would get the chance to go to cq mm. and and i saw a lot of those guys disqualify at the boat yeah. even with all the experience they had so that phase, uh, they kind of, they ease up on the artificial stress a little bit, the instructors. And at that point you've, you've been there long enough that they don't have to haze you quite as hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely still some hazing, uh, or <laughs> personal development, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Uh, and, uh, but they ease up a little bit on that artificial stress of the training because they know that you're about to do basically the hardest thing you can do in a jet. Oh, absolutely. Um, and uh, you do a month of field carrier landing practice, so landing at the aircraft uh, on the field using the, the the ball, the Fresnel lens, which is basically this little amber optical lens that lights up, and there's a green datum line, and you're basically trying to keep that close to that datum mm-hmm. to, to let you know that you're on this proper glide slope to come in and either not smash into the back of the aircraft carrier or completely miss the aircraft carrier and plunge into the ocean or yeah. miss all the wires and not. And land. then the, the boat goes right over you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, there's, there's for somebody, if, if somebody wants to get a really good appreciation for carrier operations, uh, PBS did the show called carrier. Um, it's a docu-series, uh, it's maybe a 10 or 12 doc- series long, but I think it's episode seven called Rites of Passage. Okay. And in that episode, they get into night carrier ops in adverse weather and mm. like what it's like with the carrier bobbing around and the oh, bad yeah. weather. And they do a really good job of giving people a glimpse into that world. Um, what's, what's the length of the, the carrier, like the active runway? I think, I think the landing area is approximately 500 feet or so. <laughs> uh, and you're landing in about. 250 ish feet. Yeah. Cause you're so, not using the whole how fast length. are you going at this time? Uh, depending on the weight of the aircraft, you're going around 160 miles per hour. Yeah. While it's bobbing up and down. So that's the thing about ships is they roll laterally yeah. while they're bobbing up and down Pitching, and they're moving, rolling, yeah. bobbing. You've yeah. got adverse weather that you're flying through the yeah. air. So you're getting chopped bumpy. on your end. Yeah. And then you got a guy driving that ship, a surface warfare officer who is probably extremely sleep deprived cause they don't yeah. get crew rest like pilots do and potentially dislikes you cause you're a pilot and he's not. And so yeah. they're turning the fricking ship all over the place. So you're coming down on a, a moving, uh, a moving target yeah. that, you know, if you're coming into an airport, you have this stationary localizer that you're yeah. flying in an instrument approach. Well, imagine your localizers. Now, if the ship turns just a few degrees, depending on where you're at on that approach, now the whole freaking localizer just shifted a mile or two. Yeah. And by the way, you have some fairly antiquated technology that you're utilizing. <laughs> I mean, the, the ACLS system is based off of Vietnam era fire controlled radar. So they've got God. this old school seventies 
radar that you're using for guidance. And <laughs> if they move something in front of that on the deck of the carrier, now you've just lost that. Uh, and so oh man, your instruments are unreliable. The ship is moving. It's bobbing. You're in bad weather. And oh, by the way, you've never done this before in the dark and you're all by yourself. You don't have an instructor in the back with you. Uh, So, you know, there's a very robust training syllabus going into it. You do a lot of procedural stuff in the simulator with the emergencies and the procedures of flying these big uh, carrier approaches and all the, the, the sort of procedures that go into that, which are complex in themselves. Mm -hmm. But the true test is that last 15 to 18 seconds when you break out in the dark and you maybe get a glimpse of that little amber ball and what happens in that last little bit before you touch down. You can go from this perfect approach. You can have the freaking boat moving on you and you can get back on localizer. And by the way, you have to be within a few seconds because you have aircraft landing ahead of you and after you, and you can't be off of that time by more than a few seconds. Otherwise you throw off the whole conga line behind you. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this timing component to that and you can get all that just right. And then you can break out and, you know, if it's bad weather, you might not see the ball until a little bit closer in. Yeah. And by the way, the thing's bobbing around. And right before you touch down, you can be, again, in the perfect position. And just a few seconds before you land, you get this burble of air coming off the tower of the carrier. And that hits you. And it's like the hand of God reaches out and smacks you randomly in any direction it feels. Mm. Uh, and wow. so you can go from a nice on glide slope, slightly high on glide slope or wherever you want to be right there to all of a sudden you're low or you're way high. Mm -hmm. Uh, And essentially what you're trying to do to catch the target wire is fly your head through a one foot by one foot box uh, on a moving target. Uh, And you don't get much wiggle room in either direction where either you are dangerously low, uh, getting a hook, uh, a ramp strike potentially, or you're missing all the wires and going around or even guys that land too long, you miss all that and you can just crash into the water in front of the ship. So super low airspeed. It's, uh, you know, nobody's intentionally trying to kill you, but for not having anybody trying to kill you, there's a lot of stuff that's trying to kill you. Yeah. Danger. Um, even just walking out on the deck in the dark on the aircraft carrier. I mean, if you've ever been in the bottom of a cave and you hold your hand out in front of you, cause there's Mm -hmm. zero ambient light. That's, that's the deck of an aircraft carrier out in the middle of the ocean on overcast night. Like, Uh, it is pitch black and you're walking around on the deck, just trying to find your jet and there's turning helicopter props and mm-hmm. E2 props. And, uh, for not having, again, having anybody trying to kill you, it's probably the most, uh, dangerous environment that you can be in and hats off to the enlisted personnel that are working on that deck yeah. day in, day out, freaking sleep deprived and escaping death all day long and getting paid probably getting paid less than you make uh, at mcdonald's once you put in how much time you're making it yeah for sure is there quite Mm -hmm. a bit of accidents that you've seen over the years yeah i mean that's that's probably the most common place for there to be mishaps is Mm -hmm. around the the aircraft carrier especially at night um Mm -hmm. and you know it's not in the news but it's a fairly frequent uh happening and it's it's gotten a lot better over the years um but it still happens yeah um, so yeah, you're going into that training, knowing all this and trying to do it. Uh, in my first night at the carrier, I actually disqualified at the boat. Um, I, I erred on the side of being a little too high, mm-hmm. just kind of out of nerves, I think. And coming in like, I don't want to strike. I don't want to ramp strike. I don't want to die. Yeah. So just giving it just a, you know, just a millimeter too much, a throttle at the wrong time in the freaking missing the wires and going uh, around. And I, and I did it a couple times in a row and before I knew it. I had to bingo profile back to Oceana at the walk of shame. Oh man. <laughs> um, I was fortunate, uh, to get a second chance. Uh, you know, you don't always even get a second chance at that. Uh, but, uh, ended up coming back my second time and qualifying. Okay. And, uh, after that I got picked up by VFA 143, the puke and dogs. They were just coming back from two back to back combat deployments hmm. and they were, you know, doing real stuff. A lot of casts, uh, out in the middle East at that time, this would have been, uh, early 2013, middle okay. of 2013 when I joined them. So we were just starting our next round of workups to get ready and go back and do that. Mm-hmm. So right. kind of an exciting time to be a new guy in a squadron yeah. and knowing that you're really going to go do real stuff. Yeah. Walk into a deployment. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, these guys are pretty salty coming back and you get a massive amount of shit as all the new guys <laughs> do. But I was fortunate. We had a excellent squadron. And while there was a little bit of the, you know, the new guy th- stuff that it was largely tongue in cheek and the guys are just having a good time with you. And 
I joined a great squadron, just full of good dudes mm-hmm. like Barf. Yeah. Uh, and these guys were awesome. And I used the small ears or sorry, small mouth, big ears mentality going in as the FNG. Uh, in the puking, my squadron is called the puking dogs. Uh, and the new guy gets called poop because you're the most worthless part of the dog. So instead of the last wow. one, just call you FNG or whatever, but we, we're called poop because you're the first call sign you get. And you have a guy named Barf at the Puking Dogs. So oh, yeah. <laughs> what's going on I at these Navy? Say the Navy. Just, <laughs> Our call I signs were always in, in, Before I had a conversation with Barf, like I thought it was like Top Gun. You're going to get all these cool names like Maverick. Laser. Iceman. Like, come on. No, and he was like, nah, not. it's honestly the most embarrassing yeah. thing that, you know, that you've done. Yeah. That's probably what they're going to give you. A call it's a physical absolutely. feature or an embarrassing act that you've, that you've done. And if you right? hate it, it's going to stick that oh, much yeah. harder. Yeah. You'll never <laughs> get, you'll never get rid <laughs> never of it. Get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> call, call signs are some very big in the air force too, but yeah, some, some absolutely hilarious ones. <laughs> and everything can't even gotta, repeat them in public. Everything, sometimes. a lot of them. Well, at least at that point, at that point, uh, you had to have sort of a politically correct cover story for them yeah. too. Yeah, oh, yeah, it couldn't be too vulgar. Yeah. yeah, for a while it was kind of like Wild West, and you could name people whatever. But oh, uh, after a while, they're like, uh, "We can't put that on a jet." <laughs> yeah, my first exposure to one, and I still can't repeat it like on air. But it was uh, an F twenty two pilot I met when I was going through training. And he was an 05, so he's a lieutenant colonel, um, and he was in an air show in Albuquerque. And we're checking out the F-22s for the first time. Pilot introduces himself while I'm going through my, my initial gunner school. And uh, he's, a, he's an African-American gentleman with a call sign appropriate to, like, a slur. And he was, like, Jeez. embracing of it. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to feel right now. Like, this is very awkward. And all the other pilots were like, oh, it's just his call sign. I'm like. This uh, yeah. you can't get wrong. away you can't get just away with wrong. this yeah you can't get away with this anymore like yeah that uh, sounds about right and yeah uh, I think they've they've Pressed eased the some of them back a little bit so you just become poop at the puking dogs which again I, I can't get over these <laughs> navy call signs but yeah I'm the new poop and the first thing the first yeah. thing they gave me when I showed up to the squadron is a shot of warm well tequila with a pickle. Juice Chaser, nice. the puking dog drink. And so welcome <laughs> to the squadron. Here we go. And uh, I, I largely used the small mouth, big ears mentality. Yeah. I studied hard. I, qu- I was quiet. I did whatever was given to me as a job. No questions asked. Just knocked it out. And after eight months of that, I hadn't really done anything dumb enough to earn a call sign. Okay. Other guys that had joined the squadron at the same time, they already earned their call signs. Newer guys, there's maybe four or five newer guys after me at this point, uh, nearly being there for a year. Mm-hmm. And they, a lot of them already had all these call signs and they had a big whiteboard with all these potential call signs. And my name had like three, just like throw, like someone got bored and wrote something up there. Yeah. So I, I was, I was proud of that, but this day, January 15th, 2014, uh, I was getting ready to go out and do a mission with uh, check an air-to-air refueling pod called an ARS pod that mm-hmm. had just come out of maintenance. So I was going to do some aerial refueling. Okay. And then with the extra time and gas on the back end, I was going to break off with my commanding officer and go do some dogfighting. Oh, nice. Okay. And I was getting ready for this flight. It's January in Virginia Beach. It's frigid winter. We had this unseasonably cold winter for Virginia Beach. Mm. And getting ready for the brief, looking at the buoy temperatures out where we were going to utilize that day over the Atlantic ocean and the working areas. Uh, the water temperature was 37 degrees Fahrenheit with below freezing air temps. And my buddy Fisty, uh, was at the SDO disc (laughs) and he's, he's got a pretty funny call sign. His was because he, he was fairly new in the squadron and they had a jet come out of maintenance that they just needed somebody to go fly quick okay. to, to give it a quick checkout. And so he basically got to go on just like a little joyride flight in F-18. And <laughs> we have a moving map in the Super Hornet, but it's not always updated with all the restricted areas and airspaces that are out there. Okay, But uh, he kind of just took it for what it was and assumed that everything was good and showed everything. Ended up flying through an active restricted area where Marines were live firing a Stinger heat-seeking missile designed <laughs> for shooting down other aircraft. And had his timing been just slightly off, he would have very likely been shot down by friendly forces. Oh, uh, so he earned flew into stinger territory. Hey, that's week. a good one. That is a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> he's awesome, dude. I mean, he's like yeah. Chris Pratt, just this big ball of 
energy and happiness and, yeah. and comedy all the time. And as a joke that day, you know, he's standing on the duty, answering the phone, running the radios, which the pilots all sort of rotated through day to day. But he had put up on the whiteboard the working areas, and then he had plotted using the shark tracker app uh, that he had on his phone all the position of these GPS tagged sharks. And right underneath my working area was a 16 foot great white shark, 3,500 pound beast named Mary Lee. Uh, and he's like, today would be a bad day to eject because there's this freaking massive white shark directly under your working area. So that was in the back of my mind getting ready and it's freezing temps. And then another, one of the more senior junior officers came up and he's like, Hey, you you haven't just done, you haven't done anything stupid enough to earn a call sign yet today. So (laughs) I was like double jinx going into this (laughs) flight. And anyways, I guess we can get into this in the next episode, but this flight, uh, some things do not go as planned. Yeah. You might've ended up in the drink. Yes. Or a great white smeal. (laughs) Yeah. Which is uh, equally as terrifying. I mean, to, uh, (laughs) yeah. Well, but we'll, uh, we'll jump into that on our next episode. So to our audience members, make sure to tune in next week. Yes. And we'll get into that incredible story. Get into the good stuff. Yeah. We'll dive into that. Thanks for joining us today, Smurf. Thanks for having me guys. Thanks man. And make sure you guys are following along medevac podcast on our social media. At Medevac Podcast, M E D E V A C. We're starting to get a little bit more interactive with Medevac. Yeah, yeah. Quite a uh, bit more, actually. Instagram. So make sure to follow our latest and greatest updates on everything there is to know. Yeah, come talk to us on the live episodes as well. But, anyways, tune in next week for uh, Kagan's part two. Looking Bye. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Bye.